I know I saw it when I saw it on your Instagram and I was so jealous because I mean I've been trying you know to do what I can around here but Dude, it's, kind, it's, it's kind of fun the pitchfork <laughs> the pitchfork hell yeah weighted vest banded bicep curl hell yeah best thing I've seen well I have to because I'm a ASU alumni so fork them and then at the same time you just got to work with what you got so I don't know I know you had planned on going to med school, but you, you seem to have a bit of an engineering brain too. Maybe. I think I get it from my dad because I grew up, my dad just basically always, what he called it was Mickey Mousing things together, which means <laughs> just like finding anything you can to mm-hmm. make things work. And he used to do that all the time with everything. He still does it. And so like I used to get so mad and frustrated because like, I'm like, why can't you just buy the the, the right thing and do it the right way? And now I'm doing the same shit. So <laughs> I think that's a very useful skill to have. But that's because uh, adjustable dumbbells right now are like 300% more expensive than mm-hmm. they are than they are normal price. So I'm not about to pay $1800 for a set of adjustable dumbbells. Yeah. So but, it is what it is. Yeah. yeah I know you do so. Yep. All right, man. Well, 30 pounders. I am excited to have you on the podcast today, man. It, uh, I know we've been trying to get this going for a little while now and, uh, now is a perfect time as any with everything going on. So, um, why don't we start with just introducing you and, uh, what you do for a living? So, yeah. Um, thanks for having me on. I had hoped that we would just do this hanging out in your in your kitchen, uh, mm-hmm. be over a ice cold Gatorade or something. Yeah, but here we are, social distancing and using the Zoom. So shout out to Zoom, thanks. Thank uh, you, Zoom. Yeah, yeah, they are not sponsoring this podcast. Not yet. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we can call them up. But yeah, so my name is Jeff Dolan. And I'm currently the assistant strength conditioning coach with the Phoenix Suns of the NBA, previously of the University of Illinois, and before that with the New York Yankees developmental uh, minor league system. Nice. I am a University of South Florida alum, so that's where I met Coach Andres here, and yeah. we've been in touch ever since. Love training together, love talking shop, love trying to create interesting solutions to to problems, and hopefully we can just sit down, talk shop, chop it up, have fun today. Yeah, I know that, um, yeah, so we met in grad school, obviously, like you just said, and um, like when I got there, I was a first year, obviously, and you were already a second year, and I remember at the time, you were in kind of bad shape as far as your physical, your physical nature, I guess you could call it is concerned. You had just had hip surgery and, uh, you're a little grumpy. I, I, I have to be honest, you're a little grumpy as anybody would be after they just got split open and you can't walk. Um, but, uh, I mean, I think Im- immediately it was you, me and Danny, and we all just kind of bonded quickly. And, um, what was really interesting is just like learning more about your background and everything and how like in my initial reaction was, wow, this guy's super smart. 
and I was coming from, you know, I don't know. I, I was coming from a, a, a place in undergrad where I felt like maybe I was one of the smarter guys in my program. And then you come to grad school and everybody is like, just like you. Well, at least most people are just like you. And so now it was like the first time that I was like, oh, these guys are really smart. And like, I feel self-conscious about my own expertise. Right. And um, but it was really cool. It's been really cool to see you go from where we were in grad school, working with the Yankees. I think you were already working with the Yankees then, right? You were an intern then? Yeah. Yeah. And then you got a job with the Yankees in the minor league system. You worked your way up there, ended up going to Illinois, doing your thing there for a little while, and now you're with the Phoenix Suns. So it's been super cool to see that because I just always feel like um, if people like you can stand to have me around then maybe i know a thing or two about training here and there but people as smart as you yeah i think you do okay (laughs) so let's talk a little bit about that i guess since we already brought it up is like talk a little bit about your 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 injury then um how that affected you, how it might still affect you. Um, because I think a lot of people these days are banged up in one way or the other and it, and it really depresses them and it makes them feel like, you know, uh, the way that they train or the way that they're used to train, training um, might be in jeopardy or, or they feel like they might never get back to some sort of semblance of high performance, but you definitely have. So talk about that a little bit. So... Yeah, long story. Um, I think at the you're you're absolutely right. At the time that I met you, that was one of the lowest low points of of my experience here. I that would have been about probably five or six weeks removed from a hip surgery. So on my right hip, I had uh, FAI, so femoral acetabular impingement syndrome, which is a condition that a lot of people have, particularly young athletic males, not that I'm necessarily athletic, but I think something like 50 to 70% of NFL players have it. If you just x-ray their hip, uh, not all of them are symptomatic. I I think, uh, basically 100% of ice hockey players have it because of the position their sport puts them in. So this is something that a lot of people deal with. Some people, like I said, deal with symptoms. Some people don't. Uh, I was one of the lucky ones who did. You can get into genetic predisposition, uh, angle of your femoral neck, basically this way or that way, this way or that way, the depth of your hip socket. So people from basically like a Northern European ancestry, tend to have deeper hip sockets called Scottish hip, which is basically what I have. I have a family history of hip problems. My grandfather had probably three hip replacements during his time, and he wasn't a big uh, athletic participant or anything like that. So obviously I have some predisposition there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Counterpoint. From people from like Eastern European descent or from Asian descent tend to have very shallow hip sockets, which if you look at the best Olympic weightlifters in the world, 
they come from those areas of of uh, the world because their anatomy predisposes them to be able to hit incredible ranges of motion. Yeah, they can squat really deep. If you notice, like a, exactly. a, those Olympic weightlifters, super deep squats, and and they can squat deep with a narrower stance, which is interesting mm-hmm. because of that same thing. I'm assuming, as opposed to if I watch you squat or even myself squat, much wider stance, and I can only get so deep before I feel that pinch in the front of my hip, right? Run out of room. Yep. Um, so anyhow, deep hip sockets, family history, and then having basically spent my whole life training pretty hard not necessarily in the most intelligently dosed, uh, training regime. Uh, I tend to, to train pretty hard without a whole lot of breaks. Yeah. Same here. <laughs> I, I ended up with, with hip pain. Um, this started, I had it for a number of years before I kind of was able to admit, okay, this is, an issue and this is a condition that that pronounce that pronounces itself uh, in in some interesting ways it doesn't necessarily yield joint pain in the hip my hip itself never actually hurt hmm. it got really bad to the point where i was like okay i need some sort of issue uh, or some this is an issue i need to take care of it what kinds of things was it my was back. actually bothering you? It was your back? So it, it was my back. So I, I was preparing for a powerlifting meet. This was summer of 2014. Mm-hmm. And I was deadlifting heavy. I was a few weeks out deadlifting pretty heavy. And on the same side, um, I just basically kind of wrenched my QL. So if I look back and I, I look at, okay, what was the possible mechanism for that? Basically, I was limited in hip flexion on that side. So if I was A, asymmetrical, and B, limited on my hip flexion on the right side, when I squatted down to get into sumo deadlift position, I wasn't able to get to that range of motion with just my hip joint. So I had to flex the spine and rotate a little bit to get down to the bar. So when you get under heavy load, and you're fatigued or, or probably just a matter of time, something's going to go wrong in that scenario. So I just chalked that up to being, okay, it's, you know, just a freak thing. And I took some time off, did a little bit of rehab, came back and it just kind of kept happening. And actually when I was interning with the Yankees at the time, we had several players that were dealing with FAI, some who had had the surgery. Um, I mean, Alex Rodriguez famously had this on both sides and had had the procedure done bilaterally. Um, so he being the most famous one, but we had some minor leaguers that I was working with that we had to, to modify their training programs because of what they had going on in their hip. And I was like, hmm, if you look at the symptoms for for this FAI, it's kind of a floating thing. Like you'll feel tight either in your groin or in the outside of your hip or in your lower back. You can get it done. You can get some work done on it, but it just never 
never quite goes away. It's always there. It moves around. Sometimes it's worse. Sometimes it's better. And I was like, you know what? Like that sounds exactly like what. So yeah, I basically diagnosed myself and I marched myself over to USF uh, Hospital Orthopedics and met with the doc there. I don't remember his name, but he's I think he's the Tampa Bay Bucks physician. And it was I got some pictures taken of my hips and he came in and he said, Yeah, I mean you you have FAI, you have FAI on both sides, it's a little worse on the right. Wow. You with your age, I think I was twenty-eight at the time. Like you're kind of getting towards the end of that time window where it might benefit you to get the procedure done. And I was like, well, you know, I have I am pursuing a career in strength and conditioning. I don't necessarily have to be someone squatting a thousand pounds or anything like that, but I do need to, I I feel it's very important for me to train and try to get myself better every single day. So I'm not going to be able to do that if I'm chronically injured. And obviously I have to be able to demonstrate exercises well and to not hurt myself doing that. So I knew it was going to be a somewhat extensive procedure. I went back home uh, to my parents' house in Rochester, New York, and got a second opinion from from an orthopedist up there, Dr. Brian Giordano, who actually, he specializes in uh, what he refers to as hip preservation surgery. So this type of, you know, not necessarily hip replacements, joint replacements, but this type of, uh, you know, cleaning up hip joint, repairing labrums, or taking down cam lesions and pinch lesions. So... Mm-hmm. I went up to him, same thing. I got my CT scan. He looked at it. But the most interesting thing was his other kind of diagnostic tool, which was he shot the joint with lidocaine. And within 10 minutes or whatever, I was basically able to go from about, I would say, 90 to 100 degrees of hip flexion. So slightly above parallel from the ground while standing to basically complete total range. Wow. Chest type of thing. So the, uh, there's common misconception about it that because there's bone on bone contact, it's actually like a physical block. Like your hip can't rotate. It can. It's just that the brain recognizes, okay, there's some bad stuff going on in here. I'm impinging on the joint. I don't have enough space to move. So the brain shuts down that range of motion. It's not like a physical, I can't. So once that signal was blocked, once that nerve was blocked, boom, full range of motion. And they said, mm-hmm. oh, gym and squat. So that's kind of similar maybe to a lot of people who have knee problems or any kind of say they hear the term bone on bone and that automatically makes you think like, okay, physically there's just no room for that joint to move anymore. But actually it's a neurological thing where the brain recognizes that there's a problem and it's basically giving you a detour or a workaround mm-hmm. or stopping you from doing any more damage. Cause if you, if you, if your brain were to keep letting you go into deep, to deep squat like that, it's going to just make the problem worse and doesn't want to do that. Exactly. The brain knows, uh, you know, and, and there's a lot of stuff we don't know about pain science. And this is not really my realm, but in talking to physical therapists and I have, I have a good buddies, a physical therapist who's actually really interested in this kind of pain science 
neuroscience topic. Uh, there's also, we're very emotional people. Like our brain ties emotions to certain events or certain behaviors. So there's a, there's a book called something, something about the brain keeps score or something like yeah. that. I hear mm-hmm. it's terribly boring, but <laughs> essentially part of a rehabilitative process is yes, improving upon tissue quality while building strength around the joint and progressively overloading to increase strength, progressively in, uh, increasing range of motion, that type of thing. But the other part of it is actually healing mentally. Mm-hmm. And the brain sometimes just doesn't forget that you had trauma to that area. So uh, part of the rehabilitative process is bringing the brain back and showing your brain, hey, I don't have pain when I do this anymore. You just think I do, but I don't. Mm-hmm. So there's some really interesting, I've been doing this with rehabbing my knee right now, which I'm sure we'll talk about because I'm a mess, but, <laughs> but things are heading in the right direction. So we'll, we'll talk about all of that. I think some people will be able to take some lessons away from, from what I've been doing there. But there's some research that suggests that listening to a metronome at 60 minutes, 60 beats a minute, actually increases activity in one of the cortical areas of the brain so it basically allows you to focus on that and that rewires the brain or distracts the brain to basically allow you to go through a range of motion which it may have previously inhibited and send that message that no this is okay so all my iso holes and everything that i do for my knee rehab right now I listen to a metronome at 60 beats a minute. Hmm. Uh, and that's Dr. Ebony Rio out of Australia, I believe, uh, has done research on that specifically in rehabilitation. So I know um, my physical therapist, Dr. Jeff Barron, who I'll have on the on the podcast as well. A lot of what he does in rehab is obviously sometimes there is a structural issue and that has to be addressed. But there's a certain point, like you said, where people only get so much better when you quote unquote fix the structural issue. And what his job then is, is basically playing that game of how can we change the stimulus slightly so that the brain kind of either doesn't recognize that that limit should exist with this new movement or this new style of performing that movement or kind of just forgets, so to speak, that something was wrong. So a lot of the work he's done with me has been just sort of, hey, let's let's figure out a slightly different way to squat or a slightly different way to deadlift that allows your brain to realize that it's safe, that the back isn't hurting when you're doing this and then translate that back into what you might do as a power lifter or anything else. It's real interesting stuff, but I'd never, anyway, heard that we got off on a metronome. tangent here. Uh, yeah, we did. We did. But we're talking okay. about my hip. So anyhow, Dr. Giordano went in there. He found that things were worse than we had thought. Uh, basically I had a, so I had extra bone growth on the, both the head of my femur and on my acetabular rim. So that's a cam lesion, tensor mm-hmm. lesion. Did he, know, did he say how, why that happened? Uh, he said, I mean, 
probably just, a combination of genetic predisposition and also mm-hmm. it just managed to destroy my hip somehow. <laughs> so you think maybe just from the constant motion, like that's, that's what happened. It just started calcifying bone on top of it to protect itself. Maybe and mm-hmm, that also mm-hmm. narrowed and the hip socket. Yeah. And that's, and that's the interesting thing about the body is, is that's obviously a, an adaptation to, to a demand. If you stimulate bone with force, it lays down new bone tissue in response to that. Same way you would heal from a bone fracture. It was basically doing that by just adding layers of bone tissue on top of what was already there, which then led to a worsening of the issue by trying to fix itself. Mm -hmm. So in my case, he went in there, he shaved that part of the bone down, he shaved down that acetabular rim. My labrum was torn, so he repaired that. And then I think something like 20% of the cartilage on the articular surface was basically gone. So he performed a microfracture, which is basically you drill some holes into the bone, some bone marrow bubbles up and dries like a scab or a scar. And that is functionally now what, what my cartilage is on on that part of the joint so will i at some point need a hip replacement i don't know maybe we'll see but as of this current time my hip feels awesome Uh, i really haven't had any issues with it in the last few years i do modify my training a little bit i don't squat heavy uh, or wide anymore i do a lot of stuff on a single leg and a lot of trap bar variations, which honestly, as I start progressing through my my 30s here, and I'm still in my early 30s, but soon it'll be my mid 30s. Hmm. And just looking from more of a longevity standpoint, as opposed to a pure like smash weights mentality, which I've definitely had in the past and I was full of piss and vinegar and testosterone. It was awesome. And I had fun. <laughs> screwed myself up a little bit and that's what we all do. <laughs> oh yeah. But yeah, a take home point from that is that yes, there, if you train hard, you participate in sports at a high level. If you compete and, and push your limits, chances are you're going to deal with some setbacks. That's just the reality of the situation. The question then becomes, how intelligent can you be in managing the stress before that happens to try to avoid it if you can? And how how do you respond to setbacks in your training and how creative and intelligent can you be in coming up with ways to modify what you're doing so that you can still get a training stimulus that you're looking to elicit without putting yourself in a deeper and deeper hole. Right. I think that's the tricky part. Um, and I think that's the tricky part for people who don't, you know, have a formal education, um, like yourself or myself and, and because they don't have the, they don't have the knowledge base to pull from on how to do that kind of thing. And, and coaching, I guess, even having an online coach like me or, uh, you know, an in-person coach or being a sports performance coach like, like yourself. Um, you know, some people still don't 
trust that maybe or still don't they don't seek that out before and, and they don't seek it out but until it's too late maybe sometimes with with kind of stuff like that because you're just talking about how like right now you don't do any heavy wide squatting anymore that's something that you used to do now you're doing a lot of single leg stuff now what what made you do what is it about single leg stuff that's more protective say on the hip or on your on the injuries that you have personally or even with your knee why is it that you're able to maybe get into a deeper squat with that single leg stuff than you would be otherwise bilaterally i think that when you go onto a single leg, we all know the benefits of single leg training. Okay. So if you're talking about it for a, an athlete, team sport athlete, that type of thing, we know, okay, sports are played on one leg. So you have a specificity component to the movement. You have a stability component to the movement because going from a bilateral stance to a split stance, you have basically decreased the width of your base of support. So you're training in the sagittal plane, but you're also uh, utilizing your frontal and transverse plane musculature to stabilize yourself. So there's obviously a trade-off between intensity and power that you can put out and the stability component. So for a bilateral athlete, you do have to do bilateral training. So a strength sport athlete, for example, sure. you do do your, your squats, bench, deadlift, etc. But I think there's a lot of benefits that come from injecting variability into your training program, particularly at certain times of the year when you might not want to be nailing that same pattern over and over and over again. Um, I think that I can position my, my system better in a split stance. It's easier for me to position my head over my rib cage, over my pelvis. And, um, I think that helps me in a split stance. Yeah. Yeah. I think when, when I'm thinking about it, just like in a 3d model in my head is if you're, if you're now having only one side of your pelvis being loaded, so to speak, now the rest of your pelvis can rotate around that as needed in order for you to hit more of a deeper squat or, or, or more, uh, hip flexion without, because otherwise if you're being supported by both legs, that pelvis is sort of, it can't rotate this way very much without putting too much stress on the lower back, which is obviously being, especially if you're bracing hard, things like that, that's going to be locked down. Now you're getting maybe a little bit more of that anterior posterior tilt with that, but there's not as much give this way and not as much give even this way. And so, um, you know, that, because if I get into, into a rear foot elevated, I could squat super deep but not so much if I'm bilateral. And I think it's just you know, biomechanically that just changes. And I think to your point, you know, there's times even with uh, my athletes who are powerlifting based where I give them a lot of single leg stuff. One, because I think it helps them build, 
you know, bilateral strength anyways, if you're training each leg individually. Um, but also because sometimes maybe I want to build some of that strength in the, in the more in hip flexion, but it's too dangerous for them biomechanically to be doing that with just heavy back squats all the time. And it's much safer to do it with single leg work. Right. So, and, and the body's going to find a way to get there. Mm-hmm. If you load it heavy bilaterally, you have you don't have as many degrees of freedom of the of the motion. So, mm-hmm. if you run out of room from your ankle joint and your hip joint, where's it going to go? You're going to get it from the spine. Yeah. So, the other interesting thing too, I think about single leg or split stance work is that the body understands crawl patterns. It understands gait patterns. So that is much more similar to a gait pattern being unilateral and reciprocal. So interesting test to do. Uh, This is one of those parlor tricks. There's some, some truth behind this, some ways that you can circumvent it. But if you have, you know, let's say you hold your arm out and have someone push down on it and test that strength. And then you do five bilateral squats and you have them redo that, you'll be surprised about how weak that you are in that movement. Hmm. So I don't know if, if Chandra's there or something. We'll try it out. Yeah. Yeah. She's, um, she's in the other room, but we'll try it out after the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So anyhow, but then if you do, if you do some marching steps like this, where you're basically just doing that, doing a yeah. cross pattern, your strength will come back. Interesting. So spoiler alert. Why, do they do, why, why does that occur? Is there an explanation for that? The, the theory would be that bilateral patterns confuse the neurological system because it's not a gait pattern. So if mm. you do a march or any sort of cross crawl pattern or probably even walk or run a little bit, skip that type of thing, you will kind of restore the, the neurons firing the right way. Interesting. I think so that some... there is a place certainly for heavy bilateral work. I do it with, with my athletes that I work with. Uh, do you tend to find that, um, to that point though, if, if single leg patterning and gait patterning is, is maybe more natural for us as humans, I tend to find that people really suck at first when they're doing single leg or single arm stuff. Mm-hmm. Is that just a, because of the fact that we've gotten so far away from doing that and, you know, with our modern life, um, or do you think there's something else going on there? So there, so I think, especially you're going to find that in, in barbell athletes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Dan Fichter has, a, tells a great story about Louis Simmons. So Louis Simmons lives in a bilateral world and has for 65 years or whatever. So Louis went to go visit Dan Fichter, who I've actually never met, but I've met his buddy, Chris Corfist, and I've learned a lot from him. So Louis goes to Dan's gym and he says, hey, I'm going to teach everybody how to sled drag. So obviously, aside, big on using sled drags in multiple directions for their GPP stuff, loaded up heavy kind of grind it out for an extended period of time and get in shape and build the hamstrings and glutes and all that. So Louie loads it up and starts dragging it. And, and Dan takes a video of him and he, he says, you know, Louie, I think you should look at what you're doing. You're doing this wrong. 
I'm not doing it wrong. I'm just pulling the sled. So Louis was actually walking same side arm and leg. So basically the, the gait pattern, which is reciprocal, this left shoulder has, is, was completely broken because he had done so much bilateral work. Yeah. So obviously Louis is very, very strong and mm-hmm. all the guys he works with are very, very strong and gals, but you also need to be a human being too. <laughs> like you need to be able to have reciprocal patterns. Otherwise things are going to go haywire. Yeah. That's uh, so, so basically what you're saying is, um, your body just adapts to whatever you're giving it day to day. And if you're never doing anything outside of the bilateral stuff, it's just going to throw away what it used to know about being, you know, a unilateral, uh, human, I guess you could say. Exactly. Yeah. Really interesting. Um, so getting back a little bit to, to where you were at with, with, with your hip, um, you know, all of that, like you were saying nowadays, um, your, your training is much different and, um, like maybe some of that caused a little bit of the knee issue that you're kind of dealing with right now. Uh, what's going on with your knee and uh, what have you been doing lately with that to try to heal it? So very similar story to the hip. I developed some knee pain anteriorly, bilaterally. The first time I really remember it being kind of a big deal was about six years ago. And it was when I was doing one of those stupid ass squat everyday programs. <laughs> you know, we all do it. We all do it. At we some all time. try it. And some of us survive and get real strong. And I was one of the ones that didn't survive. Yeah. Um, I think that's actually applicable to, to a lot of things. Uh, you could argue that our current youth sports system encourages survivalists to make it as opposed to it's a good point uh but that's that's a separate point a separate thread that we could go down at some point i didn't survive the (laughs) the squad everyday program and i actually i looked at some videos from around that time period and i was wearing like a wrap on my right knee so i guess maybe that knee was bothering me more Currently, my left knee is bothering me, hmm. or was. Things are, are going along pretty swimmingly. But again, you just say, okay, whatever. I'll just take some downtime, modify what I'm doing, and ignore the problem and hope that it just gets better. So it did, realistically. Um, the only times I ever had flare-ups of it were basically when I was trying to do a lot of like jumping. So hmm. I remember it was that few-month phase when we were at USF, uh, when I was about to graduate where we were playing a lot of basketball. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, well, I want to train myself to dunk because who doesn't? So I was doing more plyometric based stuff, more speed based stuff. And my knees started bothering me again. I was able to dunk a softball. So I, I guess maybe I was on my way to, to throw mm-hmm. it. But then kind of the knee got too bad, so I stopped and I just changed my training, do more hinge training, less squatting, et cetera. And again, I just kind of ignored the problem. It got better because I wasn't really doing 
explosive stuff. Then after a while, if I was doing a lot of squatting, it would flare up. So that obviously something about either moving at speed or doing a lot of work that involves the anterior chain was bothering my patella tendon. So last year, maybe a year, year and a half ago, I was doing, I decided that I wanted to do more bodybuilding type stuff. So I was doing a lot of squatting volume, like we were doing eight by eight method, Rhonda, like that type of thing, just because, you know, you're stupid. And just a lot of squatting volume and my knees like really got pissed off. So obviously there's something about that movement that wasn't, and it didn't really get better. And this past fall, I tried to actually, I sprained my ankle and in my rehab for that, which so ironically within the first like three months of working with basketball players, I had the two most common <laughs> uh, lateral ankle sprain and teletendinopathy. So, um, anyhow, I was rehabbing that. So I was doing some drops and some jumps and that type of thing. And it just flared my knee up again. And then I tried to play pickup basketball and I was just like, you know what? I have a problem. So I asked for some help. <laughs> uh, I saw one of the team orthopedists and he ultrasounded both of my patella tendons and said, yeah, I mean, you have a a moderately advanced patella tendinopathy worse on the left side. So basically uh, at some point, uh, obviously I can't see the doctor right now, but at some point when I'm able to see him again, I will have him take another picture of it. And I think we'll, we'll see pretty dramatic results and all I can get into the whole rehab protocol that I designed because that may yeah. help people. As well. Yeah, let's let's cover that a little bit. I know yeah. when last time I saw you and what I see on Instagram lately is, uh, you know, a lot of isometric loading mm-hmm. of that. I think you started progressing now into some, you know, eccentric force um, absorption and that kind of stuff. So so talk a, lo- a little bit about how you started it from 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 the day you found out what you had, what you researched, what you found out and how it's progressed to, to today. Sure. So I, I find, I personally find this very interesting. Some people may not, but this, this is very applicable to, especially the population I work with right now, who anywhere between one and two or one and three of them has some sort of underlying patella tendinopathy. Um, And it seems that the higher you go in level, the higher the prevalence is. And it's a very, it's an unreported, uh, ailment because basketball players don't want to miss time. They're hurting and they they don't remove themselves from competition or practice because so a lot of basketball players at a high level are likely dealing with the same exact thing, but uh, they just basically grind through it because they want to play. Exactly. So there, there was a study from Australian professional basketball league that basically 52% of, of, uh, Mm. basketball players in that league had some sort of patella tendinopathy. Mm. Basically what patella tendinopathy is, is just an advanced it's stage three of tendon degeneration. So with stage one being a reactive tendinopathy, what used to be referred to as tendinitis, they don't usually use, 
they don't use that term anymore because they're actually, it's not an inflammatory process, hmm. just a disruption of the extracellular matrix of the tendon. So stage one, reactive tendinopathy usually happens when you see a big spike in load. So it's some microtrauma to the area, which disrupts everything. And then that can advance to the point of stage three, which is chronic patella tendinopathy or any tendinopathy, you can get it in any tendon, Achilles, et cetera, where basically if you look at it on an ultrasound, like with mine, you'll basically see, okay, healthy tendon, healthy tendon, healthy tendon, and you'll see a hole. Mm. Hole is essentially where the body has just simply laid down non-directional collagen and so scar tissue essentially. So in order for a tendon to be strong and robust, the collagen fibers that make up the tendon need to be in line. Mm -hmm. So So the orientation, yes, exactly. If there's damage, then it will lay down. Crooked. Which is a scar. Got it. Um, And the problem is there's a phenomenon, physiological phenomenon known as the stretch shielding phenomenon where say this is your tendon and you have a little tear right here. Okay. So when your force is transmitted through the tendon, the tendon and the brain is actually very smart and it will actually spare this area from getting any stress through it. It will just redirect stress around it. So if you think of uh, Dr. Keith Barr, who I've learned a lot of this from, uh, awesome professor at UC Davis, he describes it as when you throw, when, when there's a rock in a stream, the water just mm. goes around it. So if the tendon is the stream and the injured area is the rock, the stress that is transmitted through the tendon simply just goes around. It. Mm. The problem is in order for that tissue to heal, it needs to be subjected to stress. It needs to be mm. to force. The body responds to forces. So we know that in order for the tendon to be 100% healthy and robust, everything needs to be in parallel. So we need stress to go through that injured area. And when we move at high speeds, the whole tendon works as one. It works as a sheet, basically. Yeah. If we move slowly, then we can redirect stress through that injured area because what happens, especially if we use isometrics, for example, in a long duration isometric, which is where I started, the muscle contracts and tries to shorten, even if there's no movement at the joint. And the shortening of the muscle end allows for a relaxation and a lengthening of the tendon and allows for some stress to go through that injured area and say, okay, here's a message to the body. I need you to send some some healing to this area. I need you to lay down more collagen fibers and I need you to do it at this angle. Interesting. When we do that, that's called the stress relaxation phenomenon. Um, so that is kind of the, the most important part of a tendon rehab. And it doesn't have to be an isometric contraction. The, the the method of contraction, the type of contraction doesn't matter for the tendon. It can be concentric, eccentric, or isometric. 
a lot of the classic tendon rehab protocols involve eccentric contractions. But the magic isn't the eccentric contraction in and of itself. It's just a lot of load at a slow speed. Got it. In order for a muscle to, to have the greatest adaptation to strength training, they do need the eccentric contraction. Hmm. Uh, but isometric obviously is the slowest possible contraction because there's no lengthening no short movement. Yeah. So if you get enough load through the tendon in a 30 to 45 second hold, which allows for that stress relaxation to occur, muscle contracts, tendon relaxes, all the magic happens. Then you can begin to heal that tendon. It takes at least, you know, depending on, I read a study that said tendons didn't start adapting really significantly until about two to three months. So mm. we know that tendon does not remodel as fast as muscle and it doesn't have the capability to adapt as fast, yeah. but it still does. Um, so basically in my rehab program, that's where I started. I started with body weight, long duration ISO holds, basically every single day, sometimes twice a day, four or five by 30 second, 45 second holds. And I just did a basic progressive overload where I started goblet style with like 40 pounds or something like that. Added five pounds every time once I got up to uh, a weight that I didn't feel like holding anymore because I felt lazy, 100 pounds or whatever. Then I went to the two dumbbell version by my sides, built that up to the point where I thought that holding it for 30 seconds was ridiculous. Uh, so that was about, I think, 110s on each side. And at that point, I started not being able to hold it for 30. I was, you know, getting 20, 25 seconds per each time, and I got really bored. So then I switched to kind of the Caldeets super maximal eccentric and isometric phase. So I was using an open back trap bar, deadlift the weight up, get into a split stance, lower it uh, with a weight that I would not have been able to come back up with. Hmm. Um, I don't know exactly what percentage that was. I just did it all by feel. I hadn't tested concentrically, but that's a lot of obviously strain on the tendon at a slow speed. So after I had prepared with the yielding isometrics, then I went to super maximal eccentrics and super maximal isometrics. So obviously that was a long, a long time. That was about a three, four month process hmm. of getting to that. And then I knew that, okay, I've worked at the slow speeds. Now I have to start giving myself a little bit of exposure to some faster stuff because that's what's hurt me in the past. Landing from jumps, uh, jumping, accelerating, et cetera. So then I started adding some fast eccentric stuff with a, a hard stop, essentially throwing on the brakes quickly. So starting with just some depth drops, I just, you know, when I started that, we were in quarantine. So I just used the stairs outside of mm -hmm. my, started on stair number two, drop down, land, 
the other day I was up to stair number three. If I get to stair four, that's awesome. Uh, and also adding some training of just trying to be an athlete again. Yeah. Acceleration, do some deceleration, do some moving in different planes and basically challenging my system to be able to throw on the brakes and not hurt myself. So that's where we're at right now. Throughout this time, um, because I think one thing that it's going to be hard for people to wrap their head around how long that takes because most people are really impatient, myself Mm -hmm. included, um, (laughs) because everybody wants to feel like, okay, I did this, um, you know, two sessions in a row and my knee should be feeling better. But Mm -hmm. unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Um, Also, I think that um, one thing I run into with people when I'm working with them and maybe we're trying to work around an injury and slowly provoke those tissues to to heal over time is um well for you did you did you ever have a session where like the next day you were in some pain or or anything like that because sometimes i feel that people don't realize that maybe the pain is still going to come come or, or or kind of be intense because you are provoking those tissues to to do something so what was that like for you So if you look at the kind of more applied tendinopathy rehab protocols that you can find in journals and whatnot, basically they say, okay, use pain as your guide. So you can go up to a three out of 10 pain and be happy with that. If it's more than three out of 10 pain, after you did something, you know, you did a little something too much, Hmm. back it down a little. The other interesting thing about the long duration ISO holds, which I know they're very boring, uh, for sure. <laughs> I did it, uh, at least once a day, oftentimes twice a day for, for months. And I still do it every single day. There's research and I can attest to this, that doing that before you do something else actually gives you a window of an analgesic effect where you actually get a decrease in pain in subsequent exercises from there. So I start every single session, whether it's a a lift or, uh, you know, me out there trying to be athletic or me going for a a distance run, which I've started doing a little bit of again, I start every session with four by 30 seconds. Uh, And that's, that's again, research from Ebony Rio and Jill cook, uh, that group out of Australia that, that, backs that up. Now, obviously you want to be a little bit careful because you don't want to decrease your or increase your pain tolerance and then go like do something ridiculous and rupture the thing. But, you know, as long as you are participating in a, in a well thought out progressive overload rehab program, that's something that can be utilized. And like I mentioned before, you can do eccentric stuff. You can do slow tempo, three, one, three tempo, uh, I forgot to mention this. At one point I was doing 505 tempo split hmm. and I got up to like 75 pounds in each hand or something like that. And that was brutal. So people uh, don't have an appreciation of how long. Burn. Yeah. <laughs> you do 505 tempo, all you need four or five reps. And you, I mean, unless you're really wired up to, uh, to be able to handle pain, you're not going to make it much more than that. 
Yeah, five seconds is a long time when you're, when yeah. you're doing something <laughs> like that. Ten seconds in total is no thank you. Exactly. <laughs> but that, but again, that might be what it takes for some people, right? That that slow that slow tempo allows uh, for that stress relaxation phenomenon to, to yeah. heal. It. And also if you have healthy tendons that can also just, uh, increase the cross links, increase the tendon stiffness a little bit, increase the robustness of mm. the, um, so that could be a, a good protocol um, for a healthy person who just wants to, um, you know, fortify themselves against some tendon injury, maybe. Exactly. And I would, I would suggest that, especially in a strength training population, your tendons are, are very at risk because if you, if you look at a, a two spring model, basically your muscles over here, your tendons over here, if you're, if all you do is train your muscles and you have weak tendons or loose tendons that don't have the ability to resist tension, if you're always pulling on this one, then you're always beating up on that one. Mm-hmm. the other way around your stiffest most tendon driven athletes so your track sprinters your nfl skill position guys uh a lot of nba guys they have such stiff tendons that they can very easily pull on the muscle end and cause muscle damage this way mm-hmm. so your fastest guy there's a there's a saying slow guys don't pull hamstrings mm-hmm. why because their tendons aren't stiff enough but if you are very stiff and very tendon driven and you produce, you transmit a lot of force through tendon, then if the muscle doesn't have the isometric strength to resist that stretch on this side, it becomes eccentric because the isometric fails. Right. And where does muscle damage happen? Eccentric. Yep. yep. So on the other side, why do power lifters blow out quad tendons bicep tendons, pec insertion, connective tissue, et cetera, because they don't train the tendons. Their muscles are so strong that it just, that they just rip the tendon off. Yeah. Same thing when you take anabolic steroids, Hmm. why do those, why do, why do, uh, enhanced lifters blow off tendons because the muscle adapts faster than the tendon and be able to produce that amount of force through the muscle. It's very easy to damage the other side. So from, from a, from a tissue health perspective, I think every athlete should be doing some sort of tendon based stuff, whether that is, and I would argue that you need both styles of it. You need the slow, slow tendon remodeling stuff and you need some fast stuff too. Um, whether that's just doing dynamic effort method or doing some jumps or, you know, doing some extensive plyometrics, that type of thing, nothing crazy. You don't need to, uh, if you want to train just for pure brute strength, you don't have to be out there sprinting necessarily or uh, doing a ton of jumping. But I think that doing a little bit of that is going to ultimately keep you healthier in the long run. What's a good amount for somebody out there who might be wanting to implement that into what they're doing as, as an athlete or maybe what their athletes are doing. What, what's, what is a good amount? Is it enough just to do it in your warm up? do a few sets of ISO holds like you were doing? Do you need a little bit more of that? What's a good place to start? It, it seems a lot of the literature suggests that two minutes is kind of a magic 
number to accumulate. That's not um, a lot. Do all that in one one set. Obviously, thirty seconds gives you about the same amount of of uh, of response that ninety seconds would. It's within like four or five percent. So thirty seconds is is kind of a magic number. Um, and then in terms of some extensive or maybe intensive plyometrics, I mean, doing a couple sets of box jumps, not a bad idea. You know, doing some some speed squats, that's going to get some tendon adaptation. Right. Uh, jumping rope, something as similar as simple as that, will do a lot to prepare the connective tissue and the, and the tendons tissue in your lower half. And I think it, uh, it's just smart to have some semblance of, okay, this is what you need to do for your sport. You need to be able to grind against heavy weights. Obviously you have the physical capacities to strain against a heavy weight and you need to have the skill to operate technically in that environment. You need to have big muscles and strong muscles, obviously, but sprinkle in a little bit of what you don't get from just doing your sport. Um, and on the flip side, if you have a, a team sport athlete, a sprinter, a basketball player, in, in the case of my athletes that I work with right now, they spend a lot of time moving incredibly fast, uh, mm -hmm. accelerating violently and aggressively, and with a huge plyometric load. So probably what's the best approach for me in the weight room, probably give them what the sport doesn't give them. Give them the opposite of that. Give them very slow movement. Yeah. And help keep them strong and robust. That's a good point. And I think that uh, that's something that I didn't, I mean, I, I think when, when you're a young um, bro like myself or like <laughs> you might've been in the past, you don't, oh, you don't yeah. get a lot oh, of yeah. that, man. I mean, I, I did a lot of stupid shit with my training early on and all I wanted to do was lift as heavy as I can. And to some degree I'm paying the price now, just as you're paying the price and it takes that hindsight. Um, and, and, and I think also it's just like, nobody wants to be that guy who goes into the gym and spends even an, even just two minutes doing that weird crap where you're doing <laughs> in the in the back corner of the gym right because everybody thinks that guy's weird mm -hmm. but um if i think you know it makes sense to me and, and maybe I'm wrong, but it makes sense to me that even as a, say, as a pure strength athlete, if you can find a way to make your tendons more robust or say, um, you know, I guess you would say more stiff a little bit, um, that allows you to actually have more strength because you can rely a little bit more on that tendon strength when needed and not have a blowout, so to speak. Exactly. And there, there's a, so there's, it's a little bit different in, in powerlifting where you aren't time limited. In every single other sport, your time at which you can produce force is limited. So you have your rate of force development and then your rate of force transmission. So your rate of force development is how quickly can you develop force within the contractile element? So within the muscle, how quickly can you turn that on? Can your brain give your muscle uh, the message that, hey, we need to go? And then there's a rate of force transmission. So basically diminishing or making as short as possible the delay between signal, contraction, tendon stretches, tendon comes back. 
Um, so right now, obviously tendons, I keep talking about them. They're on the forefront of my mind because I'm doing a lot of research into them. There is some conflicting vision terminology between uh, the value of stiff tendons versus elastic tendons. And is that the same thing? Is that not the same thing? Getting too, uh, too deep for our current conversation. Right. Yes. Your tendons and any sort of dynamic movement are going to play a role, especially in the squat deadlift, maybe not so much, but in the squat, the better you can utilize everything that you have from your contractile element, your parallel elastic component and your series elastic component, which is your tendons, probably the better you're going to be in the lift. And you can tell, you can tell when you go to a powerlifting meet, you can tell the guys who are explosive and the guys that aren't. Oh, sure. And the guys that are explosive, they can utilize that tenderness strategy a little bit better. Usually those are, those are the guys who, who came over to powerlifting from, you know, maybe a football background or, or that type of thing. And, and they are just more wired up to use that strategy. Yeah. Uh, but I think everyone can take something away from that, knowing that, hey, this is maybe something that can, can assist us as opposed to just grinding or just building bigger muscles. One thing that that brings up to me in my mind is, um, you know, the difference between fast and slow twitch muscle fibers. Do you tend to, I mean, is there any research out there that you've seen that people who are more fast twitch dominant in terms of muscle, muscle fiber content tend to have uh, tendons that are more stiff and, and, and can absorb that force better as well? Yes and no. Um, so what, what kind of comes to mind is obviously the, the athletes that I deal with there, I don't deal with slow twitch athletes sure. in the um, and I don't think I dealt with too many of them in pro baseball. Some soccer players. Yeah. They probably should be uh, on the cross country team instead of um, on the soccer pitch. But Within a, a fast twitch fiber dominant athlete, some tend to be a little bit more on the muscularly driven end of the spectrum, and some tend to be more on the fascia, connective tissue, tendon based end of the spectrum. Mm. Um, and you see the differences in their movement strategy, in the way that they um, produce force. You could probably pretty easily see that difference if you watch an NBA player who prefers to jump off of two feet versus jump off of one hmm. that thing. Um, what, what comes to mind is I know that we've discussed the Christian Thibodeau neurotyping mm -hmm. um, system, which is basically utilizing a personality assessment to um, basically kind of predict or group your corresponding neurophysiological traits right. um, and uses the, the Cloninger temperament and character inventory as its kind of model. Mm -hmm. and, and according to him, I mean, it's not a perfect system, but it, like, it's very interesting to see correlations between certain things. And basically within his type one, which is, uh, on the TCI, it would be a novelty seeker, so a dopamine dopamine seeker. Mm -hmm. uh, 
there's one A's and one B's. One A's tend to be, they're both neurally dominant, but one A's are a little bit more muscularly driven. They need their CNS to be firing on all cylinders, but they like to kind of grind, grind weights, heavy weights. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the one B's are more explosive, utilize the stretch shortening cycle well, utilize a tendon-based strategy, um, and are very like skill dominant. So a 1A, a 1A track sprinter would be your uh, Ben Johnson track mm-hmm. sprinter. So strong, powerful, good accelerator, uh, prefers to lift heavy weights to potentiate versus your Carl Lewis example. So your long and leaner, long Achilles tendon, bouncy response to uh, explosive work or plyometric work to potentiate himself. Um, and you would see, if you watch them run down the track, you would see them hit different positions, which allow them to use that strategy better. So to take that example and give it to powerlifting or strength uh, in general, you would see someone that is more of a 1B be that more explosive athlete. Hmm. Uh, would probably excel maybe not as much in powerlifting type sport, but would be a very good Olympic weightlifter. Right. Um, would be a very good, since they're, they're good at picking up motor skills, they'd be a very good CrossFit athlete. Um, a, lot of, a lot of fighters <laughs> be 1B because they're very good at picking up motor skills, that type of thing. Um, so I think that that applies in this context. And, yeah. and my big thing with, with my athletes is, is just looking into how do I get the most individualization out of this training program? What's their strategy? How did they figure it out? And how do I best go about giving them what they might not necessarily have, but not too much of that where that's going to interfere with their strength? And that's always a great question. How much do you work someone's strength? How much should you work their weakness? Mm. The time and place for each. So obviously if someone is a powerlifter that you're coaching, they just finished a meet, they're gonna go through an off season. Obviously as they get closer to competition, they're gonna to need to hone their strength and their skill of grinding against heavy weights. But maybe in the early phase, we, we give them what they don't have. Maybe we give them some, some bouncy stuff. Maybe we give them some single leg stuff like we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, challenge them in different ways. Restore some of the, the capacities of the body that it maybe has uh, forgotten a little bit or have eroded. Uh, and then, you know, as you get towards competition, you get more and more specific with things. I think that's something that you... I mean, I think without knowing it, you kind of recognized even a long time ago, if I, if I look back at when we were training together at USF in the lab, you were writing some training programs for me at the time. And you had me doing a lot of that kind of, you know, plyometric type of stuff. Um, you know, and, and I think some of that was just your recognition of who I am as an athlete, as a, as a quote unquote athlete or a lifter. (laughs) Uh, 
I never want to call myself an athlete really, but it just fits this context. But it, it, that is me. I'm more of that. If, if I were to say, choose between a one, a or a one B I'm on that one, a spectrum where I, I, my body prefers to do things slowly and, and with muscular force, as opposed to relying on quick, fast movements. I really well, suck that's at another, that kind That's of another stuff. conversation. Cause I think you're type two, but well, I'm just saying if I want to, <laughs> if, if my only options were one, a muscularly, and 1B, muscularly driven, yes. Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think, and, and I always kind of marveled at people, um, you know, you always hear those stories, like especially like wrestlers, right? Where you you think like they don't look necessarily like the biggest, strongest guy, but they have this weird strength, this ability to produce so much force so quickly that it like overwhelms you. One of my friends, um, in growing up in high school was that kind of guy. He's all of 150, 160 pounds. So it's not like he's physically dominant, but he was always way stronger than all of us. And he didn't really train. He would wrestled, but he just had this ability to like, if he grabbed, you it felt like Brock Lesnar was grabbing you (laughs) he just had so much strength so I mean categorizing him I'd say he had to be more in that 1B category where he just had the ability to produce force super quickly and a lot of it you would see I mean my my knowledge of wrestling is limited mostly I just you know the only time I ever really talk about is when we talk to Danny about it but yeah Um, you would see so in a sport such as wrestling or mma where you would need to shoot take down your opponent Mm -hmm. unless you're you're super 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 fast you actually want to be able to produce force from a dead stop you don't want to use a counter movement because if you use a counter movement you're going to telegraph where you're going right um so i've actually talked with danny about that and he said, yeah, basically the way, the way that I did it was I used a counter movement because I was, was you know, more tendon driven. Uh, but like the way that I did it was kind of unique. Like not many people really do it like that. And that kind of goes to another point too, is like, like I was talking about before, if we work your weakness, what's the, what's the risk that we detract from your strength? So we can coach too much oftentimes or take you too far away from what you're naturally doing well. Mm -hmm. Pretty much, for the most part, know how to do things well. Mm -hmm. And so movement and sport is simply just problem solving on the go in terms of solving a task. Mm -hmm. So if you tell me, you, and Danny Bove, okay, you have to double egg this person here uh since we're all different physiologically we might all use slightly different strategies to accomplish that right that's the body's way of self-organizing to figure out how to accomplish that task so again people squat differently people deadlift differently Mm -hmm. How much of it do you coach out of people? Obviously, if, if, they're, if they don't possess the, the range of motion to do something in a way that's not going to hurt them, that's one thing that you need to coach up a lot. Uh, maybe powerlifting isn't the best example in this case, but what I'm getting at is overcoaching is certainly possible. Right. Um, and we as coaches have to be careful about how we communicate the need to change certain movements. 
which may actually be detracting from someone's strength. So like in your case, I mean, I think anytime you learn something new, you get excited about it and you kind of start to start applying that more and more to people that you work with. But it like what I think what you're kind of saying is like in your case, if you were to start doing a bunch of tendon work with a lot of your one B guys, it's almost like you're just pouring water into a pool because they have so much of it already. Maybe at times they need a little bit of something different. And and there's definitely a time and the place for that training, but but perhaps you don't have to go <laughs> gung ho about it all the time. Yes and no. Okay say that they probably don't need a whole lot of extra explosive tenon based work. They probably don't right. need a lot of extra plyometrics. Right. Plyometrics, which probably uh, increase tendon stiffness. Right, got, right, right. Well, because they're stiff. That's what I meant, yeah. Um, I, would give them, I would give them the opposite because the opposite is what's going to allow them to stay, to, to buffer that stress that they get. They're going to respond to playing the game of basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's easy to forget that playing the sport itself has a huge training stimulus component. Mm-hmm. Um, you get stiffer, you get faster, you get in better cardiovascular shape by playing basketball. Mm-hmm. So, like I said before, in order to help buffer that stress, we probably need to give them the opposite. You know? So we've gotten into wait, wait, I think we've covered like three topics because anytime <laughs> I talk to you, it's like into a, a rabbit hole, which is great. So I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, you're a little bit more about where you come from and, and like your training philosophy and stuff. Listening to you, and hopefully people are still listening to this point, and hopefully I have enough listeners at this point to make it worth it for them to be listening. I'd have to, go, I'd have to go part one, part two here. Maybe, but I, I wanted to talk, uh, listening to you talk, it's clear that you have a very, very good understanding of strength and conditioning, physiology, even anatomy, you know, everything that is necessary for a strength coach. But, and so some, one might assume, Hey, this guy's been, been doing this for all his life, but even on the strength and condition or on the strength training side of things, that isn't, that hasn't always been like your favorite uh, hobby. Um, You were once uh, somebody who didn't even lift. If you want to use that terminology. I didn't even lift, bro. um, When did you even start lifting and what were you doing before that? So, yeah, I guess, yeah, you probably wanted to start with this question, but we launched into it. So the kind of the the background, how did I start doing this type of conversation is um, I, a a lot of people that become strength conditioning coaches, they do so because strength and conditioning afforded them some sort of transformative opportunity in their life or it played a big role at some point in their life. So a lot of, a lot of current strength coaches, you know, they're one of a couple stories, either uh, I played football growing up or played sport X growing up and uh, I wasn't very good, but then I started lifting and, uh, I basically improved my physical capacities and that helped me succeed more. So I want to help uh, other people do the same because it will help other people just like it helped me. 
and then there's the you know oh like my dad bought me a weight set when I was 12 and you know I lifted all throughout high school and I either powerlifted or bodybuild you know whatever that type of thing mm-hmm. um so that's that's your typical story I'm not that I didn't touch a weight really truly until I was like 24 ish years old 24 25 wow. so I I came up in the endurance training and racing world um i ran cross country and track in high school um i had a great experience doing it i really liked it i was uh average to a little bit above average in my ability to perform um and compete uh my my high school cross country coach jim brunswick was a huge influence on me um Sometimes when I coach, I don't know why, he's from New York, I think, but uh, whenever he would encourage me, he'd be like, come on, Jeffrey. And he would, <laughs> would like, use like a southern accent almost. So I, yeah. for some reason, when I coached, I developed like a southern accent, even though I'm from yeah. New York. Um, so anyway, I had, I had a great experience with that. I tried to run D3 uh, cross country. I was not successful there. I was injured the whole time. So then I, I took up uh, bike racing and triathlon. Mm-hmm. And I was actually fairly successful with the, the triathlon deal. I, I was very competitive, uh, I would say, on a regional level and like somewhat competitive on a national level. And I, I enjoyed it. And when I graduated from university, I decided that I wanted to become a professional triathlete. And mm-hmm. where did most of them train? Most of them trained in Colorado. So I moved myself to Colorado all on my own. Or, well, you know, my dad helped me move out there, but I was there on my own, didn't have any friends, didn't know anyone there. Um, I took a job at a gym. Uh, just doing front end stuff, folding towels, doing membership stuff, smiling at people, saying hello, giving tours, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And I trained for triathlon like 20, 30 hours a week. Wow. And now when, when I say I wanted to be a pro triathlete, like I, there's like pro triathletes who like make money and then there's people who like race as pro triathletes. So I wanted, I wanted to be the guy who finishes last in the, in the pro division of triathlon. Like I wasn't, okay. I wasn't ever going to make any money, but I just, I thought it would be cool to be able to do that. Right. So luckily for me, I was able to meet a, a guy who is one of my biggest mentors, biggest influences. Uh, when I was out there, we hit it off and he, he said, look, I know that, you want to be successful in this sport. And he, he was coaching people at the time. He was a former pro triathlete. He had won an Ironman, um, won one of the regional Ironmans, had finished 11th at the World Championships. He'd also been to the Olympics for cycling, that type of thing. Like, I know you, you want to be successful, and I want to help you. I want to mentor you. He's like, I know you can't pay me any money because you don't have any money. So he was coaching a, a – a gal at the time who was ranked very highly, I think top 10 in the world. And they were having trouble finding a good training partner for her. Mm-hmm. And he was like, look, I think you might be perfect because you're a faster swimmer than she is. Like 
you're pretty comparable on the bike and she's a little bit faster runner than you. So also you're a male, she's female, you're amateur, she's professional. There's going to be no rivalry there. You two can be honest with each other about how you're feeling. Um, and I think this will work well. So basically in exchange for being her sparring partner and her, her training partner, he mentored me in terms of how to write a training program. And he's like, I'm not going to write anything for you. I'm going to give you resources to look into. So you're going to read this, 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 and that. And you're going to write your own stuff. And I will give you feedback on it. Hmm. So, you know, realistically, uh, at the end of the day, what he did was he gave me exercise physiology books. Yeah. He taught me about energy systems, you know, explained aerobic and anaerobic, how to train for certain things, how to elicit certain adaptations based off training. And when I went to college the first time, college, I'll tell you about college number two and all that. I I didn't know, like, this is exactly what I should have been doing, studying exercise science. But I honestly didn't know it was a thing. I had no idea that you could go right. to college and study it. So, you know, swing and a miss, but, you know, whatever, it all ended up. So after a year in Colorado, things didn't work out quite, you know, they didn't work out great. It, it just wasn't feasible for me to stay there anymore. Um, I did have some success racing. And I think if I had been there for another year and was able to train like that, like, I might have been able to qualify to race professionally, but, um, you know, regardless, I, I ended up going home back to New York and I decided, Hey, like I want to go back to school and actually study this because I want to, I want to learn about this. I want to understand this really well. And I want to coach people. Um, so, so you had I, already gotten a degree previously. I've gotten a degree in history. So the original plan was to be a high school history teacher. Yeah. Um, much different, much different path you're on now. Sort of, but it's teaching at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. Just a different teaching teaching is teaching. It's just a different, uh, different subject. Yeah. Okay. So you go back to school, um, to study exercise science then the second time around. Yes. So go back there. And, uh, at that time, like I was just, it was a big life change. Obviously I had, I had gone all in. I had moved to Colorado. I had sacrificed a lot, moved away from my friends, family, um, survived on a very low income, trained my ass off mostly by myself. Um, and when I moved away from there, I, I eventually realized that I needed, I just needed a clean break. I needed to just put all that in the past and truly move on. And around that time when I was kind of looking for my next, uh, next thing to get into, cause I, when I get into things, I obsess over them. Um, there was a, a group of guys who I met through my classes who were all either doing bodybuilding or powerlifting. And I, had done most of my triathlon training alone and I was almost like, uh, I was almost like anti training with people. Cause like I had my mm-hmm. big thing that I needed to do and I didn't, you know, I didn't want to compete with people during training because I needed to hit this specific thing, whatever. Right. Right. And 
this group of guys, they didn't care that I was a, a skinny, you know, an endurance athlete. They didn't care that they were a lot stronger than me or whatever. They're just like, Hey, just come train with us. Hang out. Like we'll have fun. Yeah. And, and we did, it was awesome. And I was like the, the, I really enjoyed that camaraderie and that community feel that I hadn't had in a little while with the endurance training. I mean, yeah, granted, that's mostly my fault for just training alone, but you, know, you get what I'm saying. So sure. I started lifting and I saw some results really quick because I was getting the newbie gains and whatnot. And I, I was, I felt good about that. I was having fun. Um, and, uh, I was, I started spending some time with the strength coach at school. Uh, he allowed me to help coach some athletes there. And, and I kind of realized, Hey, I might want to work in a team sport setting in the weight room because this had afforded me, uh, a, a very transformative experience. This is, this has basically changed my life. And I wanted those two things. I wanted to feel like I was part of a team and I wanted to utilize strength and conditioning as a way to help empower athletes um, and empower people. So from there, that's, that's kind of where this all snowballed to um, three, four internships later and three full-time jobs later. And here I am uh, talking to yeah. That's crazy. And I think, it, well, I mean, it, in a way, you know, it wasn't direct because it's not like you, um, you use strength and condition or strength training to empower yourself as a triathlete. But it seems like that catalyst, which was that guy that basically taught you how to write programs to begin with, that was your catalyst for falling in love with with the process of learning about strength and conditioning and, and writing programs and learning the physiology and all the exercise science. And it just so happened that you've fell in love with a different type of training after triathlon training. You fell in love with that uh, camaraderie with the gym and lifting weights. And now, you know, it's just catapulted you to where you are today. Um, now, one thing that I struggle with and you and I have talked about before, I still struggle with today is this concept of imposter syndrome where I, you know, like even if I compare myself to yourself and, and Daniel Bove, um, I at times feel like you guys are the true strength coaches. You guys are the true professionals and experts. And I'm just over here pretending that I know what I'm talking about. Um, and obviously we're in different fields, so to speak, or different, different uh, shades of the same field, I guess, if you want to call it that. But um, you've talked to me in the past about how that's affected you. Um, coming from somebody who was, you got your first degree in history and you showed up you know, uh, in your second degree as one of the older guys and, you know, ended up, um, getting a degree there, going to get your grad school at USF. And I think even at that time, just feeling like you had to, to prove to yourself that you belonged. Do you still get that? Having worked in the MLB, having worked in the NCAA, having worked in the NBA, obviously there's there's no arguing with your credentials and your expertise. But how do you how have you overcome that or or do you still struggle with that today? Every day I struggle with that. And that's um you know to go back to the 
the neurotyping system, mm-hmm. type neurotypes, which I know we both are, uh, I think you may be more 2B, whereas I'm 2A, but that's just my guess. Um, we are what would be referred to as in the TCI as reward seekers. So we desire to be respected um, by other people. And we feel good about that. So we are oftentimes people pleasers. We are uh, have a a lower natural sense of self esteem, and we get bolstered when we feel like we have the approval of other people. Um, and we also get uh, potentiated, become a little bit alpha when we are able to be in situations where we feel confident or get to display a sense of confidence. So right now, I, you know, we've been, I'm real warmed up because we've yeah. been talking for like an hour and a half. So yeah. right now I am confident. I am outspoken. I am thinking clearly. I'm potentiated right now. Like I feel like the incredible Hulk right now, yeah. but it actually takes me some time to warm up, to get to, to get to yeah. here. Like one sounds very familiar conversation then i'm a little bit more have to think about my words a little bit more i say um more i'm not quite as as fluid mm-hmm. and it's actually the same thing when i coach i'm i'm a different version of myself when i'm coaching one person versus when i'm coaching 60 people like when i when i am in front of a group of 35 like i both my teams at the college level were 30 or 35. I'm a completely different person than with a small group. Mm-hmm. So the neurotyping system, not, not that it's perfect or anything like that. And I don't, I mean, I don't know Christian Thibodeau. He doesn't pay me to say this. I just think the system's really cool in the way that it can, can help you draw conclusions between how you feel and how you act and how that might just be a function of how you're naturally wired up to be. So people like us, we're going to feel, we're going to look at what other people do and be a little bit more aware of what we don't know. So a classic, like, what is it? The Dunning, Dunning-Kruger. Dunning-Kruger, yeah. Where, where if, if you're brand new, you think you're really competent. And then mm. if you're like really experienced, you think you're really competent. But if you're like in the middle, the then, suck. is it a you or is it just a, is it linear? Forget. It's kind of like it, it goes up really sharply in the beginning and then it kind of comes back down and then comes back up slowly again as you get more expertise. But yeah. in that middle part, so, you feel like a piece of trash all the time. Right. So you, that, I mean, essentially that's where we are and that, and that may be where we'll stay. Yeah. Um, but the, you know, utilizing it as a positive, essentially I'm, I'm aware of how good I'm not. And that's mm-hmm. okay. That's not necessarily to put myself down. That's just more to motivate myself to get better. Because if you ever lose the sense of, of humility, where you, you think you've got everything figured out, well then, then the game's over because you're no longer improving. And your job is to get better every day so that you can help your athletes get better every day. And if you ever stop, then you're doing them a disservice. So that's kind of the mentality that I take about that. 
it's like i think um i think I, i've been hearing this youtube um ad over and over again from neil degrasse tyson where he says that like the trick isn't knowing like the trick isn't in being smart enough to like know what you're talking about it's in knowing enough about the subject to know that you're wrong or to know how much you don't know and that's like the scary part of it right when you get to a point where you you know you, you know enough to hold your conversation and feel a little bit confident what you're talking about but you're also like crushed under the immense weight of how much you don't know and how much other people know more than you and that's hard to overcome and I think a lot of what you're saying was, I didn't know that you were going to be giving me a, a psychological uh, session here <laughs> to tell me exactly who I am. But um, it, it's true. And I'll even relate it to what I do here with creating content or, or filming videos. I sometimes have to cut the same exact video three times because the first one sucks. I'm, I, I, I'm really scattered with my words. I'm nervous. The second one's a little better. And then by the third time doing it is when I'm in a flow and it takes me a while. And I think a lot of that, what's going through my head is a lot of, am I saying the right thing? Um, do these people even, are these people even going to think that I know what I'm talking about or are they going to think that I'm an idiot? Um, and that, those things are always going through my head and I, I envy the people, I guess, who can get up there and just have this confidence to say what they're going to say and not care, but that's just not me. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a, uh, pluses and minuses to, to perfectionism. Yeah. Uh, and That's you just, for sure. You have to maximize the the positives and try to minimize the negative parts of it. Yeah, and I think uh, having the same conversation with with Danny, I think a lot of the same things he suffers from as well. The same mm -hmm. exact things. I think anybody. Well, the, at a high I level, think the. Uh, yeah, I read something once about the those who are perpetually perpetually curious mm -hmm. consistently think that they're dumb. Yeah, because they're always le learning new things. Right. You're like, oh, okay, well, I didn't know this before, and there must be a lot of other people out there that do know this, but I don't. So I'm in the minority here, and everyone's ahead of me, which yeah. probably is not the case. Yeah. Um, I mean, I like I've been trying to since we're in quarantine here. I've been more diligent about just posting my my uh training session videos of for myself right and there's always that thought of like who really cares what i'm doing uh you yeah. know, trying to do sprint drills and i probably one of the slowest people <laughs> in town but you know every once in a while you get messages like someone sent me a message a video of like kid doing doing these exercises and and that you know, if, if it helps one, then, then it's worth doing. And I kind of need to suck it up and, and get over myself a little bit and realize that there, there is good that can come out of just simply sharing what I'm doing. Yeah, definitely. And I think, uh, going back to what you're saying, I, I, so the, that typing neurotyping that Christian Thibodeau, um, that you got all this from as far as 
categorizing people into four different types. I know some of that comes also from like Chinese, like fire, water, all the elements. There's four elements that type in typing into. So that's you can you can get it from both sides. And another way so I've seen it being interpreted or interpreted is from Eric Braverman. He mm-hmm. came out with a book called The Edge Effect, and it's basically the, all three are one and the same. They just four three two three different ways to interpret the same thing. But so for those who are interested in, in maybe learning a little bit more about that, you can check out those three resources, um, and just pick the one that maybe resonates more with you. But, um, and so last couple points we'll hit on here is with, with respect to what we're just talking about, um, going into a world I I talked about this earlier where the first time I was kind of confronted with with uh, feeling more self-conscious about my own expertise was when I went to grad school and I met guys like you and Danny now you maybe have even experienced that to a higher degree working in these fields like Major League Baseball the NBA uh, working with Danny at the Phoenix Suns now and I'm sure a lot of your colleagues have along the way and currently have been elite performers in in their field um what have you been able to identify we just kind of touched upon it a little bit is just that endless hunger and perfectionism can be part of it but like what have you identified as some traits that some of these high performers share in common when it comes to their job or just life in general just a a consistent effort to get better every day that really is what it boils down to. I uh, here pick one: mountain or tree. Which one do you like better? Mountain. Okay. So the the example that I like to give is is your life is like climbing a mountain, and the you know everybody starts at more you know towards the bottom, mm-hmm. and you go up, and as you start your career and ascend through the ranks of of becoming a a higher level performer you just continue to climb that mountain so if your internship or whatever is the the bottom then the people climb towards the top and you can at any point decide okay this is the summit i'm cool here i'm going to chill the secret behind everything is that there is no top you can keep going as high as you want. Um, so it's not like hiking up Camelback where you get to the top and then you come back down. You can keep going. And that's, that's kind of the, the approach that I take to everything. Um, whether athletically, educationally, professionally, et cetera, you can just keep going. You can always get better. You can always find a way to improve. And like I said, you have to do that every single day to benefit the people that put their trust in you to help them as they climb their mountain. Yeah. That's great stuff, man. And, um, I agree. I think that, and I think the key there also, and one thing that I've seen be an issue for some people who do climb very high up on that mountain is there comes a point where, um, everybody recognizes your expertise or everybody recognizes you to be an expert. And, and I think it takes a lot of discipline and a lot of, um, self-awareness, I guess, to not let that get to your head and not let that become something that corrupts you, I guess. That's something that I, I guess I see on the horizon. Hopefully one day I'm regarded as, 
an expert in my field and how am I going to keep myself grounded and I think one way I want to do that is just to continue surrounding myself with people like yourself who help me to realize that I don't know everything and that there's still much more to learn in so many domains well, that's that's the best thing is there's always something else always something else to learn. so there's no limit absolutely absolutely well, I, I definitely had a lot more to talk about and a lot more questions, but I think what we'll do is is cut this one here and we're going to have to have you on again to talk a little bit more about specifically what you do day to day and, and as as a practitioner, as a strength and conditioning coach and talk a little bit more about that. But I think I'm glad that we talked about everything that we did because it was really fascinating stuff that hopefully a lot of people get a lot out of. Sweet. That sounds awesome. So, um, for those who maybe want to get into contact with you, where can they do so? Do you have social media? Um, anything you want to share there? Yeah. Um, my, my Instagram is hammer of Dolan. So H A M M E R O F D O L A N all one word. Um, you can, you can contact me on there. I'm still pretty good about getting back to everyone who, who gets in contact with me. So that would be a good place to start. Um, there's uh, some workout videos, training videos, that type of thing. I'm getting better about posting more on there. Um, mm-hmm. So the, that would be the place. Perfect. All right. So get in contact with Jeff. If you have any questions? Um, he's a wealth of information. It's really good talking to you, man. And uh, as for you listeners, we'll catch you guys in the next episode. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks, everybody.